We're live, folks. My guest today is Arthur Frederick Dudley, a.k.a. Rick Dudley. Rick is one of the most OG people I know in the space and someone who's helped shape my understanding of blockchains and crypto economics over the years. He's also one of these guys that, you know, is fairly discreet publicly, but is, has contributed a ton to Ethereum and Cosmos. He's one of the co-authors of EIP-1559. He was a developer at Eris Industries alongside Jay and Ethan back when they were having some of the early ideas for what would eventually become Tendermint and the Cosmos SDK. And now Rick is building Laconic, which is a product that creates a marketplace for blockchain state data. And it serves it to users and applications in a way that's trust minimized and is verifiable. This addresses the issue of blockchain state being expensive to maintain and computationally intensive to verify. So we're gonna dive deep into that today and understand the broader implications of the protocol, how it works and some potential applications for the decentralized protocol landscape. I'm also dying to find out why Rick thinks most crypto projects have no idea how money in the law works. So before we get started, make sure to hit the like button, hit subscribe and the notification bell to get notified when we go live every week. And if you enjoy this content, please consider staking with us as we're live on Epmos and Quicksilver and soon on Osmosis. Just look for the interrupt in the active validator set. My guest, Rick Dudley, is coming up next right here on the interrupt. Hey Rick, how's it going, man? Good. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a while since uh, we chatted. I'm trying to think like when's the last time I saw you. Well, COVID happened, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. W were you at Cosmoverse? Did I miss you there? No, I wasn't there. Okay. And I the only conference I went to last year was ETH Denver in February. So okay, so that's probably why I haven't seen you. Yeah, in a while. it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how you been? Uh, pretty good. Really busy working on Laconic, uh, to be honest. I mean, that's that's where I've been. So, yeah, good, good, good segue. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we're not going to segue straight into Laconic. Um, okay. That's but yeah, too. very, very soon. Like, as I was prepping for this, I realized that, like, I'd love to, I'd love to do an episode with you and Ethan and you know, Jay, if those two guys will agree to get on a live stream together and maybe like Brian and, and just kind of go down memory lane and like, you know, talk about the early days of Cosmos and the types of things you guys were talking about. And, and um, yeah, just, um, yeah, I love these kind of retrospective episodes. Like, yeah, you, you, did, you did an episode with Chango recently where you were talking about this a little bit. And I, I thought like, I just love this kind of stuff. It's really cool. Yeah. I think it's really, it's really interesting I mean, for me, what always impressed me about Tendermint was that Jay had done the research and actually proposed something that referenced the literature. I mean, the, the Bitcoin paper does reference prior art, but uh, Jay really, uh, you know, proof of stake prior to Jay was pretty nonsensical. And so the, yeah. the, whole, the whole notion of like hot stuff or like, you know, there's these great research teams now that were doing Byzantine fault tolerance in the academic sphere. And now they're working on blockchains like Jay was really the first person to do that. Um, yeah. And and at in, in that in that domain. Right. Like I said, there were there was there was always a, an association. But at the level that I mean, he, he sort of did it in a way that no one else had done before. And I, I to me, that's the sort of the fundamental 
the sort of genesis of like the cosmos ecosystem, right? It's like, let's actually have this rigorous approach. Like let's actually go read a book about how to do this and then add contribute to that and, and, and build a production system as well. Like all, all of those things, right? Because there's a lot of academics that do great academic research and they don't ever build production systems. Yeah. And, and Tinderman does all of that, right? It's, it's academic, it's additive and it's in production. And yeah. And, and some of the things I think that also came out of those, that early research in those early days uh, when you guys were at Monax, uh, previously Eris Industries, right? And uh, was that uh, this idea of putting Ethereum on proof of stake. And uh, I, I think that that, um, that that library or the, the software ended up being used in production, right? In, in Hyperledger. Or, but yeah. but those, those ideas of putting Ethereum on proof of stake sort of, that initial idea, you know, sort of got us to where we are today with the merge and everything and like the massive change that Ethereum's gone through over the last year. Yeah. I mean, there was, there were, there were, um, murmurings or however you want to put it. Uh, I wasn't there, so I don't want to speak for other people, but there was definitely a, an attempt to, to get Tendermint to be the proof of stake algorithm, um, for Ethereum. Um, and that didn't happen because, uh, how can I put this, uh, appropriately, um, if you look at the guarantees that uh, we have with proof of stake Ethereum today, Tendermint yeah. is not, that's a different set of guarantees than what Tendermint provides. Um, I think that's the nicest way of putting it. Um, and so, yeah. so the you Ethereum. Be nice here, Rick. You can, you can, well, you can I shit other on people you watch it. I, I, that's <laughs> the thing, right? I want to, I, I'm, I'm critical of the decisions that were made, but I also respect the decisions that were made. You know what I mean? So I don't yeah. want to sound like, of uh, Vitalik was 100% wrong, but I will say that the set of guarantees that you get with the current proof of stake Ethereum are kind of strange. And I, I don't think it, uh, I'll put it this way. He, if Vitalik achieved his goal, it's unclear to me if all of that effort, all, seven years later, all of that effort, uh, improve the product market fit of ethereum yeah right i think that's the trade-off here, trade here is about finality right i mean that the fundamental trade-off between ethereum and tendermint i think has to do with finality but also has to do with the number of validators and and liveness validators makes and liveness right and the number of validators uh is what in, is what effectively has this impact on finality because you you can't have a consensus algorithm with you know, an unlimited number of validators and have instant finality. And this is what kind of Tendermint achieves. Exactly. And, the, and this liveness property that Vitalik wanted that Tendermint doesn't have. And, the, and these are all related. The number of validators, the liveness and the finality are all related uh, properties. And so, yeah. so to me, there's this question, like you can't get the liveness that was required or, or desired by Vitalik. And then, and then the, the question is, but but what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to say that I have 4,000 um, Ethereum validators and I have liveness um, in a context where you, you in the, in the sort of, it's, it's like a, the cap theorem, which is not really, it's just a place to start. It's not really a, a great uh, description of the actual system, but if we have a network partition, uh, cap theorem is a, uh, as um, consistency, availability, and partition. So, uh, yeah. partition tolerance. So, if you so basically, 
when the to cut to the chase, I'm not going to get into the details of what that is, but to cut to the chase, you can you can choose either when the network partitions, it can stop and then people know that the network is stopped and they can't update the data that was on the network or the network can partition and then it can continue on to take new messages. But then at some point it has to figure out as a network, well, how do we resolve the, the messages that occurred while we were split? Right. Yeah. And so yeah. generally, um, you know, something like Bitcoin is always a great example to start with. Uh, Bitcoin is not really uh, it tolerates partitions, but it 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 um, it you know, you you have to figure out which partition you're on. You use the proof of work to figure that out. If you're on the minority partition and you write to it, you should expect that those rights um, will not be merged back into the, the main Bitcoin. And this is just sort of it doesn't it's not even described in the context of cap. Um, and so the question is, and so this relates to finality, right? If, if the network is partitioned, then you don't have, how can you have finality? And, yeah. and this is, and, and availability and liveness and finality are all related. So, so Tendermint does not have the availability or, or yeah, the liveness uh, guarantees that Vitalik wanted. So he uh, continued to develop uh, proof of stake algorithms until he got one that had the properties that he liked, um, which is yeah. fine. There's nothing wrong with that. What, what, was this being considered at some point? Was, was Tendermint seriously being considered as the algorithm for Ethereum? Absolutely, yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah, well, like by a, like by a, whom? Well, you're going to have to find those people on the internet and ask them. But, <laughs> but, I'll, but I'll say that it, that it was discussed before my time. Prior, prior okay. to me being involved, um, it was discussed. Okay, but, but very, but not that long from because I started in in um, twenty fifteen, so not too far before. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of history before yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I honestly like I could talk about this kind of stuff, uh, you know, kind of diving back and and, uh, and and like you know having having conversations about like these these conversations that were occurring and and the different trade offs, but. But we'll save that for another episode um, because today I really want to talk about Laconic. And, you know, I, I think you guys have not, you, you're, you've just started kind of communicating about Laconic. I, I, I know that you've been working on this project for like a long time and there hasn't been a whole lot of like you talking about it publicly. Like you did this one episode with Chengo. I think this is probably the second yeah. podcast you do or something yeah. like that. Um, so yeah, like I, I listened to that podcast this morning, and I have a ton of questions. Yes, feel uh, free. We go but we're gonna we're, we we're have still to gonna, do a little you know, intro first, but yeah. we will do a little bit of intro. I'm not just gonna like dive yeah, in, jump in. But I think I think like maybe where we could start is, you know, I'd love to get your sense of what you think are the biggest challenges in Web three, and you know, maybe we can address that thing we talked. I talked about the intro, which is um, why you think that. Uh, there's a yeah. disconnect between you know builders and investors and and maybe you know other participants that are tr that are looking at crypto. Um, you know th that's certainly a challenge. And I'd love for you to maybe dive into that a little bit. But technically speaking, I think also um, curious to know what what you think are the biggest challenges and how that relates to what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of. Let's see. Let me think. Let me so situated here. I think there are social challenges. I think there are sort of related to that, like legal and political challenges. I think there are financial challenges. And then after you get through all of that, 
there are technical challenges. And the technical challenges actually um, aren't really getting resolved at the rate that they ought to be because of these other issues. So the main issue that we'll touch on here is that the purpose of these systems, the reason you need uh, disintermediation, the reason you need multiple uh, un entities who don't trust each other um, to come to agreement, we're, we're, that's a placeholder, that's a replacement for the law. That, that's a replacement for the rule of law. We're basically saying we're going to add cryptography in addition to the law um, and create a, this system that exists in an illegal space. Um, and that's the goal. I mean, that's the goal of Bitcoin. Ultimately, that's the goal of Ethereum. I mean, all of the, if you if you aren't trying to facilitate an illegal transaction, then you don't need a blockchain. You can just use the law. I mean, that's literally, you know, what that means. So, yeah, I think I think one of the biggest uh, realizations that I had when, uh, you know, around the time we met when when I was building this company called Stratum was that none of the people that we were trying to sell this product to. And, and, and I think this applies also to most of the enterprise blockchain stuff that was going in around that time is that none of these companies had any incentive to use an illegal system when they had the legal system and all of its infrastructure to rely on. Like there was no point in building blockchain consortia when you could just have contracts and agreements. Right. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. And it turns out that, I mean, this is something that we talked about at Monax a lot. It turns out there are actually many, um, uh, and SkewChain is, is an example that I'm aware of. There are plenty of cases in the real world economic world today where people don't have, uh, where people are operating legally, but don't have legal protection. Um, um, so, so international trade is, is sort of the, the you know, shipping international shipping where you're in open water and you're going from country to country is sort of the canonical example of that. Um, and so, but there's many others as well. So, so beyond that, that, I mean, I think like, it's a good point. And, and I, I think that I, I feel like, like power structures get it. I feel, I feel like the regulators are starting to get it that, um, that the that what blockchain is attempting to do is to circumvent in the in the interest of efficiency of efficiency and uh, and inclusivity and not having to sort of trust central you know uh, bodies where power like where trust is eroding. Um, I think that the governments and regulators are starting to understand that and. You know, in true government or regulatory fashion, instead of improving the existing existing systems, they just want to like, you know, try to control um, the you know the, the the this new form of like collaboration and 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 economic, um, you know, activity. Um, but but beyond like that sort of social challenge, um, what what do you feel are the biggest technical challenges that are facing crypto at the moment? So that they are related, right? I I think. Um, there's a lot of interesting work on consensus algorithms. I think that's actually in some sense moving really far ahead. I think um, what other technical challenges? I think getting roll-ups, uh, you know, having roll-ups as a scaling solution is a, 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 both a basic science as well as engineering issue. 
And then um, obviously I'm very much, I've been very focused on um, this issue of read availability or, you know, I don't really think of it as data availability. I think those are sort of different terms. Um, but yeah, actually making the data accessible and making and, and delivering, uh, having the end user actually hold the data is a, is a really serious technical challenge for um, pretty much all blockchains. Uh, maybe Bitcoin is an exception there, maybe. It's debatable. But actually having users be truly sovereign and have the data themselves, um, whether they're even, even regardless of if they're running a node or not, um, is, uh, is, a, is a serious technical challenge. Do you think that we, like the industry will need to make some compromises, you know, on, on this trilemma, maybe like on the, on the blockchain trilemma right, and the decentralization security and scale, but then also considering that things are becoming more fragmented that we're, we're heading towards a world where rather than big monolithic chains that we can attempt to keep fairly decentralized, we're moving towards something that looks more fragmented with different security guarantees in every system. And then also security guarantees that people have to reason about when moving between those systems. Um, it, it feels to me like there's going to be a gradient of like that the end state will be um, a sort of tapestry of, you know, gradients on decentralization, security, and scale that people will have to choose what they want to use depending on what their, what their needs are and like how they want to interact with other people. Yeah. Do, do you think that, but, but, but see, the challenge I see here is that I, I don't think most people will, will be able to reason about those things quite effectively. I don't think enough. they'll, yeah, they won't, they will fail to. I, but I absolutely agree. That's the future that we're headed towards. I think there'll be millions of chains. I think there'll be blockchains used all over the place and we'll be using a, a combination of roll-ups and, and sort of mesh like, you know, not straight linear L1, L2, L3, but also meshes of roll-ups um, and attestations, publishing bridges, et cetera. And I think that there'll be millions of chains. And um, in terms of the trilemma, we won't have massive scale on most chains. It, of millions of chains, most of those chains are going to have seven members, three members, 10 members. A large yeah. chain will have 100 members. And there'll be one or two chains out there with 4,000 validators. But you only need, in the world, you only need a few of those. And there'll maybe be some weird exotic case, like someone builds a, a popular video game that where everyone can be a validator or something, and you end up with thousands or tens of thousands of validators that way but i think i think i mean i i could talk at, i could have a whole conversation just about the different types of attestations that we're making and why we believe those attestations and how many people are you trying to convince like what's the what's you know why are we why would we use the same tools to convince 10,000 people that we to convince four people Right? If I need to convince yeah. four people of something cryptographically, it's much easier than if I'm trying to convince 10,000 people of something cryptographically. 
And yeah. I, and so I think that 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 fracturing that you're talking about is just going to emerge naturally. And I think like pretty much every ETH killer will find its niche, right? I think they all have, well, not all of them, but like the majority of them have some technical merit. They have some BD team. They have some money behind them. They're not going to, they're not going to completely die. You know, they already have low transaction volumes, right? They're, they're going to find a niche where they're going to, you know, those BD teams are going to say, okay, well, we're just going to focus on gaming in South Korea or, yeah. or whatever. They, it they is. essentially become app chains. Like they, yeah. they, they sort of, they sort of dissolve into app chains. Yeah. And I think yeah. everything becomes an app chain. I think, I think mainnet Ethereum becomes an app chain ultimately. And the, and the application is settling rollups. Yeah. Very similar to Cosmos Hub, frankly, right? I think Polkadot, Ethereum 2.0, uh, Cosmos Hub are all actually very similar in terms of the in-game state in the final thesis. And I don't think that there will necessarily be a winner uh, per se. I think they will have uh, curious different properties, right? So, you know, right now with DeFi, as I, last I checked, um, Ethereum was number one and, and Cosmos was number two. Right. Yeah. And, and it's really hard to measure Cosmos because it's a disconnected, you know, it's who uses the Cosmos SDK. But I'm still I'm pretty sure even with the downturn, it's still number one, Ethereum, number two, Cosmos. And I think that that will persist and and, you know, maybe Avalanche ends up dominating in games or or something else. But um, I, I think that the, the projects will naturally find their own their own places. Yeah, I, I, I for me, that makes sense that it. The idea that all of the ETH killers or layer ones that emerged over the last cycle um, end up finding a niche. I mean, maybe some of them will die, but certainly I think at some point they will end up sort of, you know, all of them will kind of slot into their niches and, and figure out um, uh, what is the use case that they can best serve. And then, and then at that point, yeah, everything is sort of an app chain. Everything is sort of a platform that serves a particular need we just spent you know billions of dollars <laughs> trying to get there uh but um but yeah i mean that's that's the pace of innovation i guess so yeah let's let's uh switch gears to laconic here um why do we need laconic rick are you there I think we may have lost Rick. Oh, we lost him. Um, well, while he's coming back, um, just let you know that, yeah, I guess I mentioned earlier, uh, we're live. Uh, we're validating on um, Admos and Quicksilver. So uh, if you hold any of those tokens, please consider staking with us. And we are uh, looking into getting a um, an Admos uh, sorry, an osmosis validator up and running, and that will probably be uh, happening soon. So get ready to start delegating your tokens uh, to interop. Um, and yeah, we've got all sorts of other validators plans. Um, so yeah, this is a this is a bit annoying having on a live stream. Let me see if I can get him back. Here he is. That's a little awkward. Yeah, that was awkward for me, but <laughs> all right, you're back though. Uh, so um, I was saying, yeah. So why do we need Laconic? 
Oh, yeah. So, so yeah, what problem does Laconic solve? So Laconic, the, the ultimate goal of Laconic is to get all of the data that a user is concerned about in the hands of that user. So not in the not on a cloud-hosted environment, not in Microsoft, not at AWS, but in their actual custody. And, and to have all of the verification that they need to do be possible uh, by themselves. And so it turns out in order to do this in the sort of general case on Ethereum uh, with a DAP, so let's say you're using... Um, the, the, the sort of our, our one of our, our some of our model examples are uniswap.info, which is not yeah. not to be confused with app.uniswap.org, which is the actual swapping code. The uniswap.info yeah. has all this historic info that it that it calculates about about previous uh, activity. So it turns out that this is actually a very complicated and difficult thing to do. How do I take the data from the Ethereum mainnet that is relevant to this front end. So I have a front end. I've specified the front end. I have a, I've a, have you know an a, 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 an IPFS uh, SID for the front end. So I, I have this um, you know fixed static front end, and then it's going to make certain calls. How do I, um, you know, what do I do to, um, how do I um, how you provide the data to users? Yeah, how do I how do I take all of that data and provide it to users is actually uh, pretty complicated, um, yeah. and so that's what we've uh, that's what we've been working on. Um, so, and, in the case of Uniswap, like I'm, I'm in the case of Uniswap and and all the other DApps, essentially, like what's really happening most of the time is that the teams that are running these DApps um, have some server infrastructure on AWS or on some some server. They have nodes that are querying blockchain data. They're taking that data. They're uh, maybe transforming it. They're maybe um, making some some transformations to it. They're putting it in like some GraphQL or Postgres database, and then they're serving that up to users. But the problem here is that there's this sort of central point between the blockchain and the user when it comes to making transactions and interacting with the protocol for what it was intended to do. You're you know, you you can effectively you know, get your own Ethereum node and like run your transactions through it and be fully decentralized. But when it comes to the services that uh, teams are often uh, proposing in terms of analytics or data or like this sort of info uh, page uh, with with Uniswap, there's usually a centralized service there. Yeah, and like absolutely. GraphQL tried to address this issue, but you the uh, graph. Yeah, or sorry, graph the the graph. Yeah, uh, so tried to address this, but. Um, what was missing there, I think, from what I understand, is that the, the verifiability is missing. You're basically right. sort of trusting that the graph is offering up the correct data. Yeah, it can't. It can't provide you. It can't leverage existing Ethereum infrastructure to prove that the statements coming from the graph actually came from Ethereum or whatever. Why is that though? Like, why can't we have the graph? Or like, why couldn't Alchemy, for instance, do uh, provable data? Where okay, maybe you're making some compromise about um, you know the availability, or maybe they can shut off the service, but at least you know that the data is is valid. They is could. Possible? So the short the short answer is it's absolutely possible. That's what Laconic does. So okay. it's it's absolutely possible. And so okay. there's this sort of historic question of why didn't that happen? And I think there's there's a couple of different 
historic answers there, but the TLDR is the original plan for Ethereum was missed, if you'll remember, where missed was you ran a browser and the node yeah. together. Holy shit, man. <laughs> and so you would be able to prove it yourself. The the problem yeah. was the math didn't work out there. And even in the test nets, scaling um, meant that you couldn't synchronize um, the geth node in a reasonable amount of time. So if you're just using your laptop like a normal laptop and you try to start missed, you just spend all your time syncing. So it would never work. So yeah. Lac Laconic addresses that problem. And there's, and in the time, you know, there's been fast sync protocols and port, and I think it's um, called Portal uh, from the Ethereum Foundation. There's a couple of other protocols. Uh, there's multiple light LES, multiple light client protocols that have, have come around um, to sort of alleviate, to help alleviate this problem, but they still don't go, the Laconic network goes the whole way. So it goes from source code to what is in the user's eyeballs with everything being verifiable. So you, if you see a message on Laconic that came to you through the Laconic network, you could say, I wanna know which blockchain or blockchains this came from. I wanna know where the sort, what code generated this result. I wanna know who wrote that code. We have all of that stuff in the Laconic network. Um, and so, um, yeah, I just sort of went because it turns out once you solve the hard part of getting the, the Ethereum data in the network in a reasonable way, then getting all this other stuff is trivial. You know, getting Git in there, getting uh, JavaScript files in there, all that stuff's like literally like a, a, a side note, a little asterisk once mm. you've gotten the Ethereum data in there. So once we got the Ethereum data in there, well, it was really two contemporaneous projects I was working on uh, separately. And I was like, okay, well, if we can do the Ethereum data with this project, then we can do, we're doing all this other data with this other project. We can put them together in the same database. And because we're using IPLD uh, and we're building the hash links, auxiliary hash links ourselves, which I'm sort of jumping <laughs> ahead, but once we're building those auxiliary hash links, then it's trivial to do all this stuff. Hmm. And, and, we, and we're gonna take, um, we're gonna do TLS as well. So we're gonna do certificates and certificate transparency. So we'll be able to make like some pretty, intense i mean you'll literally be able to say i know who wrote this code i know where this message came from i know who signed this certificate i know all of these things about this data and i, so I the can entire supply chain like basically yeah. data and so what one was like when we were mentioning earlier the example of say like uniswap and what they're doing to the data like they're transfer they're transforming the data in order to serve their use case which is to like show you this info dot uh yeah, daily, website, daily right? total volume, for example. For example, that's data that's not available in the, like, you don't see that data in the blockchain. You can't query Ethereum with an RPC call and say like, I want to know how many, like what's the TBL on, right. on Uniswap. It Someone's would, had to take and yeah. build that model. It, 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 wh where does that come, come in and who's building those models for Laconic for specifically the applications that they need the data for? Right, so... That's a good question. So we have a we have a tool called or, or part part of our our, our suite of software is, is something called a, a watcher, which um, will do that work and does it in a provable way. So it it actually generates its own little blockchain, if you will, um, uh, explaining how it did its transformations. Um, yeah. So actually, let's let's go into that. So I would say sure. Laconic is is the project is like three different pieces of innovation. There is the Laconic LLC itself, which is in the Cayman Islands. 
There is the Laconic Stack, which is the standalone software uh, that anyone can run today to generate this data and these proofs, this evidence that they need. And then there's the Laconic Network, which facilitates the buying and selling. You know, it facilitates running these services, discovering the services, running the services, paying for service, and then and then making sure all of that's verifiable. Um, and so, you know, those three pieces are an evolution, right? We were just, we built the stack part a long time ago. We, we've built it many times, you know, we've iterated on the stack many times over at this point. We started working, you know, uh, 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 MakerDAO is still using an early version of, of that stack uh, to this day. Um, uh, last I checked, which was recently. Um, um, and we've iterated on that stack many times. And, and that standalone stack right now, I think, is, is very robust. I'm very happy with where it is. It's pretty solid. Um, and if you were an uh, intrepid developer, you could go into uh, the, the stack orchestrator code and, and run that yourself and put that into production yourself right now today. But the, the problem with that is it's very expensive to generate this evidence. It's very expensive to take the extract the data in real time out of the Ethereum network and, 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 and preserve its provability and place it in another uh, data store. That's a computationally um, very expensive and, and specifically disk IO, uh, disk IO operations, very expensive activity to do. And so as an, as a DAP developer, when you have, you know, very few users, you can run this reasonably on the laptop or whatever it, it will, it's possible, but as your app grows, or if you're doing something like you want to see all of the Uniswap V3 pool data, right? Well, then a laptop's not going to be able to uh, process that in a timely manner necessarily. I mean, laptops are pretty powerful, so some of them can, but like maybe not all of them. And so at that point, you need hardware. And, and when you need hardware, well, now you have this problem of, okay, well, am I going to buy hardware and rack it in a data center? That's probably not a viable answer. Am I going to go to AWS? Well, AWS is centralizing. There's all sorts of problems. There's censorship. You know, AWS may choose to comply with a law that I'm not um, legally obligated to comply with. And we've seen this issue with Alchemy and Infura and these people where they're complying with the laws in their jurisdiction, but the DAP developer is in yeah. a different jurisdiction. So, so then you end up with a situation where it's like, okay, well, if I want to have multiple service providers actually serving this data to users, they need to be in multiple jurisdictions. And that's what Laconic LLC solves. It's a Cayman Island LLC. So we can have the members of that company in different jurisdictions. And those members will contract with the end users um, and comply with those laws um, in that way. And also the, the Cayman Island law, um, of course, they comply with um, um, anti-terrorist activity and what have you, money laundering activity. They're actually quite strict about that stuff. But some of these other laws that are more variable from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, uh, they're very friendly with so so uh, mm. or you know amicable reasonable I would frankly is what I is what I would call it they're just reasonable um, and so they're they're a good jurisdiction to be in for those reasons um, and also again uh, as a sort of international meeting place where entities from different countries meet in the Cayman Islands it's a it's a reasonable place to to do this activity so yeah. the end user won't be won't be buying data from Laconic LLC. They'll be buying data from a, a service provider who is registered with the LLC. And that registration happens on chain. So the LLC itself is a, is a, is a legal um, 
is a legal wrapper or a legal container, but all of the activity actually happens on chain. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk about the, the LSC and the governance uh, a little bit later, because I think it's one of the most kind of novel and interesting things about the way you guys have set this up. Uh, so, w but coming back to Laconic and how it relates to Ethereum. Um, so, so first of all, I mean, Laconic is, is sort of built for Ethereum, like using Laconic on something like a Cosmos chain or a rollup doesn't really make sense, right? Because mm, it depends. These, it depends. Yeah. So it, so, well, so what's interesting is we, um, uh, the same team that works on Laconic was also core contributors to uh, Cosmos SDK. So we, we did a bunch of work on Cosmos SDK. Um, the fundamental hard problem of how do you get data out of, uh, so the, the data structures in Ethereum and the data structures in Cosmos and many other blockchains were designed to facilitate consensus, not to facilitate reading the data back out. And so in those architectures, there's, there's utility in taking the techniques that we've applied to Ethereum and applying them to those other chains. So there is a value and utility to taking those techniques and applying them to Cosmos SDK chains. And, and well, uh, you know, for better or worse. So, so uh, Osmosis is an example where it would be useful. Um, Cosmos Hub, less so. But also just the way that we've designed the system. So for example, you can't have a block explorer that works across uh, Cosmos Hub upgrades, right? No one's ever bothered to build one that works that way. If you built the block explorer on top of Laconic instead of directly on top of the chain, you would actually be able to provide that continuity. Um, okay, I see. So a block explorer, what you're saying is block explorers can't uh, remain continuous through Cosmos Hub upgrades because every time there's an upgrade, something changes and then the block explorer, they have to... They lose, they, um, they re-genesis, right? They restart the chain, right? So right. when you start yeah. that new genesis, people just, as a matter of convenience, don't um, don't preserve that data. And 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 you don't have a way of representing the irregulars. Ah, right, okay, yeah, I see. So like this is historical data from before the upgrade uh, gets wiped out. Yeah. And, and you don't have a way of representing the irregular state change that happens during the upgrade. Whereas yeah. in the Laconic system, we have a means of doing all those things. We can link any two arbitrary chains together and we have a means of representing these arbitrary state changes. Hmm. Um, so you can, we can provide that continuity as a service. So, but in the case of Ethereum, so it's coming back to like this, this idea of you say Uniswap or you know, in, in any sort of major DeFi application or application on Ethereum. Um, the the watcher is sort of purpose built for uh, a data use case, I think, right? So in the case of Uniswap, you might want to collect and display uh, or serve up some some data, but someone else might build another service that I don't know aggregates like compound and Uniswap data and Aave data and like serves that up in a way that's like useful to a specific type of user. And then they would build their own watcher to do that. So if I understand correctly, like Laconic doesn't, it doesn't like do a blanket, like here's all the Ethereum data. It, it's, it's use case specific. And the idea is that instead of having to reconstruct the state yourself, verify that state, uh, maybe run your own service that that, that, that does this data transformation, you can uh, pay someone, pay a service provider to write 
that watcher for you and and post it up so that you have access to that data and anybody that you feel needs access to that data. Yeah, so the DAP, the DAP developer would probably write the watcher themselves and watchers are composable. So um, so you could, so one DAP developer might choose to write a watcher that's only concerned with uniswap.info. Another yeah. DAP developer might choose to write a watcher that's concerned with uniswap.info and compound. Um, or you could even have a case where someone wrote one watcher for compound, someone else wrote one watcher for uniswap.info, and then a third person came and composed those two watchers together in a third watcher and, and then is serving that data out. So they're composable as well. Okay. Yeah. Does, does, I mean, do you think that, do you think that the end state here is that essentially no one will be, I mean, like there, there will be very few people that will be serving up like full archival nodes and that probably what will end up happening is that lots of sort of non critical data like no one cares that i sent an eth to myself in 2015 right like right. at some point in time that data will not exist it like it, it will cease to exist in any place right that's a great question so i actually think that you need something like laconic to incentivize people to preserve um the archive the archive and and another another thing that we do um because we're ipld based um we actually can easily, well, it's all relative, but relatively easily take our, our archive and push it into um, Filecoin, where, where then there can be this clear monetization strategy for storing the data. So because we monetize the transmission of the data, which is a much easier problem to solve than the verifiable storage of Filecoin, um, we're providing an incentive for why that so you have to think about it like there's different incentives throughout the process there's an incentive for why did i include the transaction right that incentive is very clear but there's not really any incentive in any blockchain i'm aware of for why i should then send that data why sh why should i satisfy a read from a user a user asks for a read why do i care and yeah. that's what laconic is trying to solve is we're incentivizing the reading of that data and by incentivizing the reading of that data, we now that's step number two. Now we can talk about the incentives of step number three, which is a long-term persistent storage of that data. Because if you think about just having in the incentives of just Filecoin and just um, Ethereum, you have this gap in the middle, whereas, well, wh why do I take the Ethereum data and transform that and publish it to Filecoin? There's not really an incentive for me to do that. Whereas with Laconic, there, there starts to become more of an incentive to do that because I may I need to um, support my own infrastructure that is that is read infrastructure. So people will come to a know to come to a single place to get their their um, historic reads as well as their uh, more recent reads. And so I'll be incentivized to 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 charge them. There'll already be a, an ecosystem in place where people are accustomed to paying for data. And so when they want to pay, for old data or new data, they'll come to the same place, buy that data, and that will incentivize the archival storage. Because you're absolutely right. Right now, we don't have a, a very good model for why um, archival storage uh, persists. And it is a, a real uh, mechanism design uh, issue, actually. Mm. So you've been talking about IPLD. Uh, you, you mentioned yeah. that a few times, and I realized I don't really know what yeah. that is so that's, maybe, maybe it's a maybe we should like explain what that is yeah so that's interplanetary linked data 
is what it stands for. And that is the sort of underlying um, storage format for IPFS. So uh, IPFS is interplanetary file system. It's like, how do you move this data around? IPLD is how do you represent this data in a self-describing sort of package? So when you have an IPLD object or I don't need, uh, you have IPLD codecs, I don't know all of the, the verbiage, but basically when you take um, a file format and you create an IPLD codec that supports it, now I can create uh, hash linked references to that data. Okay, so what does that what does that look like concretely? So let's say I've got like I don't know, a JPEG. Um, yeah, I have I have a I, I I serve up that JPEG, but also some metadata that describes. Yeah, I have a, the, the, CID, the CID. So I have I have the, the 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 data, the raw bytes themselves, and then I have yeah. the the CID associated with those bytes. So when you go in a in a file uh, into IPFS. And you retrieve that image by its hash, yeah. that is IPLD, right? And then okay. if that data had a hash in it, IPLD is smart enough to figure out how to traverse. The whole purpose of IPLD is how do you provide the metadata so that you can then traverse that graph of hashes? Okay. Okay, I see. So it's sort of like creating... Um... Is is this the is this like the versioning system that's in IPFS? Like where you're essentially sort of following versions of files? Well, it relies on this property, but it's not the same thing. So okay, like um, so like a, a clear example would be uh, there there somewhere you can find the um, um, protocol labs how to block explore for Ethereum data, where yeah. you could go and you could go from the block header all the way down into the different, you could follow the hash links that are there in that header and get to the other data types and get to the other data. Um, and so okay. it's, a, and, and it knew because of the codec, how to display that in the browser. So it's almost like magic, right? It's you, you describe the, the protocol, you describe the file, whatever the, the set of bytes is, you describe it in an IPLD codec and now you can traverse that um, you can write some code that will traverse anything written in that format. So the same code will traverse the Bitcoin blockchain that will traverse the Ethereum blockchain that will traverse, you know, some other blockchain in your NFT and it will drill into the NFT and it'll be able to display the JPEG and it'll be able to display the metadata and all this stuff because it is represented as an IPLD object. Okay. And how did, so how does, uh, Laconic utilize this, um, to 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 serve like data for uh, right. for applications. So it's the core of our system in that the first thing we do is we take the uh, Ethereum data, which could be any blockchain, it could be any hash linked data structure, and we convert that into an IPLD object, which is very easy to do. We then index it in that context and we store it in that in that. So we we're storing the RLP encoded bytes. But we are also storing the the SID, the the the, the multi-format address of the of that object. So that's how we're able to generate evidence. So that's why. So um, let me think about how I can explain this in an easy way. So on Ethereum, you have um, you have uh, transaction receipts, and you have the event messages. Yeah. When you have an event message on Ethereum 
the event message does not prove all the way back up to the, the root. So when you have a set of events, which is what, um, which is what the graph consumes, the way that you prove that that event is correct is you find the block that that event was in and then you rerun that whole block and at the end of it you see did you have the same event that you started with yeah whereas if i have an account balance on ethereum i have a block number and then i can get a proof so i don't have to recompute the whole block to figure out the account balance in that block i just get the proof from the ethereum client about that account balance at that block. And I can present that proof and the balance to the user using ETH get, get proof. But, but the, the actual logs in Ethereum are not provable in this way. So this is why the graph isn't provable. Uh, and there's a, whole, there's a lot of consequences of this. But because we use IPLD, we can create those hash links. So where the link was missing in the original Ethereum protocol, we can augment that protocol and now we can generate a proof using the Ethereum data and our additional links, which are understandable relatively easy, easily. And it's, 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 it's not some weird, crazy different format. It's a format very similar to the existing Ethereum formats to prove that this log actually came from this block. Is this something that could be integrated into ethereum that where you basically could like look at any uh event or uh slot like and and prove uh, that that this thing did in fact happen because it would have this ipld information attached to it so yes and no so yes it could be integrated at the client level but no that's not practical because the client is 100 percent focused on following consensus and so okay. this is, again, why the Laconic stack exists. So what we do is we take all of this data while the blocks are being validated in the client. We take all that data out and we store it in a Postgres database. And we, can, we, we take that data out, we convert it into IPLD objects, we take those IPLD objects, we store those in Postgres. And now yeah. we can do this additional proof system on top of that. And we can do this as a generic system. We can do this with any hash link data structure. We can do it with Git repositories. We can do it with TLS certificates. We can do it with Bitcoin, Ethereum, any, anything. I mean, it's funny. It's, I, I don't mean this in any disparaging way. It's hard to do that with Solana because the way the hash linking works in Solana, you don't, it's harder to do. But for most, it's still possible. And for, and for most blockchains, it's, 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 it's like relatively, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a lift, but it's not impossible. Okay, so the, the the Laconic has its own Ethereum client that is processing blocks. It is taking the data uh, that out of those blocks, um, transforming them into IPLD data, which preserves uh, provenance of like transactions yeah. uh, and events. It takes that data and puts it in the Postgres database. My question here is, okay, so now like, w how do we know? Um, well, I, I guess I guess the verifiability comes from the IPLD data. Uh, I guess 
does does this Postgres database sort of live in a decentralized, distributed way? Oh, that's a, that that's a good question. Censored, like where does the blockchain come into it? Basically, right, right. So uh, this is the standalone so. stack that we're describing, right? So yeah. an individual person or an individual developer would run this stack, which is doing this very complicated, uh, compute-intensive ingesting process. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want, as a user, the data that that standalone node gives you, you could verify by yourself, potentially. But it, it's expensive. It's, it's still expensive to verify. So instead, yeah. we say, okay, well, let's make a federation. Let's take a bunch of these people. Let's take seven of these people, federate them together. And now the user can always verify. And then, and then that is the Laconic L2. So the Laconic L2 is seven members. Right now is what we have today. These seven members are validating. They're, they're ingesting the blocks. And then they're coming up with, you know, uh, uh, they're making commitments to the state of those blocks, and then and then they're sharing that information with a with a paying customer. And now the mm. paying customer has all of the tools, all of the ability to verify that data. But the reason they believe that data is because those seven members are are bonded on a proof of stake network. Mm. So that's that's where the network comes in because the cost of so you, you, because the user doesn't want to have to verify every single transaction. They're making you know, thousands of queries a second or whatever it is. The cost of verifying one transaction is, is longer than the, you know, it takes a, a long time and there's just nothing we can do about that. Um, and so instead of them having, the reason they trust uh, the members is not because they're verifying every transaction themselves. It's because for any fraudulent transaction that they receive, they can generate a proof a fraud proof, submit that to the blockchain and be refunded uh, for that erroneous transaction. Okay. So, so this, uh, what you described as the, as the stack is like the individual client, this client, uh, basically you have like a network of validators that are running this client. There are seven of these validators is I'm, I'm curious, like why seven? Uh, uh, so why, it's a, why, it, yeah. A personal preference of mine, um, six. I mean, seven is a good number, but you know. Yeah, six plus that. one. It's the it's the lowest number that is both um, uh, odd and Byzantine fault tolerant. Hmm. Why why is it Byzantine fault tolerant? Um, well, it's three. It satisfies the three n plus one requirement. Right. Okay. Um. Yeah, I think I, so, I think people might hear that and say, "Hey, that's not a whole lot of validators." Uh, sure, that's what we're starting. Are there with. plans? That's what yeah. you're starting with. So there's plans to add more at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And again, um, uh, from a from a customer perspective, if our customer is a DApp developer, and and they're saying, um, "Right now, I have to use Infura, Alchemy, Block Native, to assert that my data is correct." because one of them goes down or whatever, for whatever reason, right? That's three right there. That sounds like a pain in the ass. You integrate one protocol with Laconic and you get seven instead of mm. three. And you get an assertion from us that you can verify yourself that we're actually physically located in different places. Alchemy and Infura both run in AWS. So yeah. presume, I presume. Um, so if AWS decides we're not doing this anymore, you just lost two out of your three, if not all three out of your three in that case, right? So yeah. seven is a low number, but seven is incredibly high compared to what people have one right now, right? Or they, yeah. or they think they have four and they have one, 
Whereas we're positively asserting that you have uh, seven. So you mentioned that uh, this was that this network, right? This blockchain network is is a is a roll up. Yeah. Um, and I read somewhere, I think on your website, it says the best way to think of L of of Laconic is an overlay child network of a collection of existing L ones, which I, I sort of get that, and L twos, but um. It may also be thinking, helpful to think of it as simply an L2 that helps make Ethereum data more available to end users. So it sort of sits on top of existing L1s and L2s as uh, because it's, it, it has clients for each of those L1s and L2s right now, Ethereum. Um, but when you say that it's an L2, does it, uh, does it make proofs back to Ethereum? Like, is, is it sort of like it similar does. to an it optimistic does. rollup? Or? It, is, it does an optimistic rollup. That's exactly what it does. It does an optimistic rollup. Um, but also all of the value, there's no value, there's no economic value created on the Laconic L2. So okay. the token is an L, Ethereum L1 token that we then bridge into our network. So why did you choose to build it as an L2? Like why not like a, a, an independent chain? Because you have validators. What was the benefit of building as a... Yeah, um, so that we can actually use that stake to refund users as opposed so i mean that's it's it's basically that's basically that's the short version there's a, more reasons but that's the main reason when you okay. transact with the, with the laconic network you're not trusting those validators to be honest because if they're dishonest you can go to the ethereum l1 and get your money back okay so you're losing you're using ethereum here as a settlement mechanism in case they're dishonest if you were if you were just uh, your own L1, you wouldn't have this underlying settlement mechanism that people trust. Correct. Wow. Okay. This, uh, this is really interesting. <laughs> um, and I read somewhere also that Laconic predicts reorgs. How does it do that? Well, we protect again. Well, well, so it's interesting, right? We've been working on this so long. There aren't Ethereum reorgs anymore. But when there were Ethereum reorgs, yeah. um, um, at the execution layer, I should say, um, uh, we were able to expose because of how we return the data in a query, you would be able to see the reorg. Uh, oh, predict reorgs. I know. Yeah, I'm sorry. We've been doing this a long time. We do. We do have a tool that um, that could be used to predict reorgs, um, and it turned out nobody cared about that. So. Uh, we, we still have that tool. We still use it in our stack. It's, it's uh, an alternative client that we have um, that looks directly at dev P2P. Um, so we, we have a fork of Geth, and then we have this other thing that we call ethprobe. It's a very clever name uh, that um, is written using the JavaScript libraries, which looks at, uh, because we are geographically distributed, because we're connecting to different parts of the internet, we can actually see all of the blocks so we can see contentious blocks in the old regime. We could see like, oh, there's a block with this, you know, because uh, Ethereum would sort of fork naturally pretty often. Um, yeah. And so we would see these, we could see these forks. We could actually detect them um, back when it was proof of work. Uh, now with Ethereum proof of stake, um, these sorts of reorgs don't happen anymore. Um, and there's all sorts of issues with, uh, it's it, it's Ethereum solves a set of very interesting engineering challenges. So I don't want to sound I don't want to give the impression that I'm critical, but the execution layer 
uh, no longer reorgs as far as we can tell. And uh, we haven't gotten we haven't gotten 100 percent confirmation on that. If someone would like to explain to me with 100 percent certainty uh, if reorgs can happen at the current execution layer, that would be great. We've, we've been looking at the code and sort of going back and forth on it amongst ourselves. Um, but that doesn't happen anymore. So you can have these reorgs um, at the seat at the at the consensus layer. Um, and we do have a consensus layer. Uh, we don't just have a fork of Geth. We also have a fork of Lighthouse that um, injects state from Lighthouse into our system as well, which is a, which is almost is is adding another chain. So like adding Gorly is adding another chain. Like Gorly and Ethereum are different enough that we might we could just as easily be adding Avalanche as we could be adding Gorly. Um, the okay. same thing with with the Beacon chain. That was the same lift as adding. Uh, an avalanche or an optimism or optimism would have been a lighter lift actually if you add other chains um does that mean that you're creating like another effectively got another roll up uh for that chain or does that all happen in the same client and can you run all that on the same because that starts getting kind of computationally expensive yeah it depends so it would be so the trust so the way to think about it is trust anchors so we're, we're going to launch with a trust. Well, we're already engaging customers without a trust anchor, right? Because we have legal agreements with them. The trust anchor that, you've, that we've been discussing in this call is on Ethereum. We could support any number of chains and only have a trust anchor on Ethereum. But it would make sense if you are you know, doing avalanche data to have an avalanche trust anchor, in which right. case we okay. would... We would Go through the burning and minting of tokens to to generate that trust anchor. So, but by, by trust anchor, you're referring back. You're referring to this idea that um, people can always settle on Ethereum. If you're providing data to say like applications on Avalanche, um, it would make sense for that trust anchor to be on Avalanche. I mean, I guess you could have it on Ethereum and keep people could bridge their tokens over, but that yeah. would be like complicated and convoluted. You'd want to have it over there specifically for Avalanche and like maybe then there is an opportunity for you to bridge these two things together such that like there can be some some well, sort of interesting use cases that come out of like the melding of these two types yeah, of data. And they would be bridged in RL2, right? Those, yeah. those trust anchors would sort of emergently be bridged in RL2, but they wouldn't necessarily be connected to each other in any way besides that. Okay. And there's, there's not really, I mean... What we've discovered in this process, so we, we started this project. I mean, this project, parts of this project started in 2620. I mean, I started thinking about this stuff in like 2015. And then when we were working at Monax, there was actually some, I was trying to explain why we wanted to do some SQL stuff at Monax uh, in, with regards to Ethereum data. Um, and then, like I said, we, we, we had Vulcanized DB, uh, which we worked with uh, MakerDAO on that for two years. Um, so we, we've been working on this stuff for a very long time. Um, yeah. and, um, and in that time we've sort of the, the product direction has sort of shifted over time as we've interacted with people and they've asked for different things. Um, and so I'm saying that to say, no one, no one's asking us about, um, you know, people we've had to actually sort of go backwards. We were, we were, uh, in, in 2022, we were trying to get people, we were building watchers for people. We were showing watchers to people. We were trying to get people excited about watchers. And then what we discovered was that, you know, on the path to us building watchers, we had to build extremely performant RPC endpoints. 
and we had to build out a, a, a deployment system and all these sorts of things. We basically had to build out a tiny, a tiny Infura or a tiny Alchemy. And we realized that that was actually what people wanted to buy from us. And they didn't, the, the watcher concept is a little, it's not too advanced, but you have to be really committed to understanding that. You know, the MakerDAO team went away and built out a whole, they did a whole bunch of experiments on their own. And they're like, okay, we agree with this. You know, they were super thorough. The, the DAP Hub folks were like super thorough in their research. Yeah. Um, and so they had done, they, I sort of made this pot, I, I made this hypothesis. And they're like, oh, well, I'll go test it myself. Right. So they went away and they tested, they're like, oh, okay, we get it. And like, then they bought into the watcher thing. Turns out they're like the only people in the world who want to bother with that. Right. No other person that we've tried to sell the product to has been interested in uh, doing that. What they want to see is this immediate savings on the RPC endpoint side. And then from there, we, you know, now that our foot's in the door, we can say, well, we can give you even more savings. We can simplify. You're, you're using that RPC endpoint to build your own indexer. We have a whole library of tools to build indexers that will auto-generate indexers for you. And we have a marketplace where you can go to get other people to run that indexer for you when you don't want to scale it. So it's sort of like that that product pipeline foot in the door thing that we're that we're figuring out now. So mm. um, right now we're trying to get people to understand we're, we're we're in the process of testing and evaluating. You know, my my hypothesis is our is our is our RPC endpoint runs you know uh, you know ridiculously more performantly because uh, we did run in AWS. So we've been we've been um, bare metal first the whole time. But we did run some some infra in AWS, and 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 the cost of that was just astronomical. I mean, it it it, it paid for you know the hardware paid for itself in two months. So um, so we're leveraging that to you know potentially provide a discounted RPC endpoint service, which is a very complicated business. I, I don't know if you want to yeah. get into that, but it, it's not. Um, it turns out that that's not even what we started with. Because the RPC endpoints are subsidized by VCs, DAP developers are never experiencing the true cost of running an indexing service or running an RPC endpoint. They're not exposed to that in an in a economically, in a free market way, right? There's this, there's this actor, there's this venture capitalist who's going in and, and giving away free samples at like a massive scale. Yeah, and so- yeah. There's a challenge for us in how do we compete with that, but there's also a challenge in that our customers are being, you know, are suckling on this centralization service and don't realize it, right? They yeah. don't. Is that the case also in, like, I guess in Ethereum that's the case because you have Alchemy and 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 I mean, to to a large extent, Infura has been uh, this uh, this teat that uh, <laughs> the yes. developers have been suckling on, if you will. Yeah. Uh, but but it but in Cosmos. Um, you know, all, they're all typically validators run RPC endpoints, and I think also they sell those RPC endpoints. And it, it might be that like an Evmos contracts, you know, such and such a validator, or maybe a set of validators to set up RPC endpoints. And so, like in the end, like VCs are paying for it because, like, yeah, it's up. It's it's still right in that ecosystem that's yeah. still subsidized as well. That true cost of a read isn't exposed directly to the person doing the read. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that um, is again, the problem we're trying to solve because I realized, you know, back when mist was being, when I was trying to run mist, that this was going to be a problem. 
and it's taken an enormous, you know, number of years to get to the point where uh, being self-funded for so long that we were able to actually have a product uh, or really engage in the marketplace. So um, we're running a little long here. And I could go on yeah. forever, but uh, I do want to talk about the governance aspect yeah. because I think this is one of the most interesting things. And I know that I know it's the thing that you're uh, really kind of passionate about. Um, so what's the governance structure here? And like, why did you build it the way you did? Yeah. So um, I worked with uh, Koala on the um, DAO model law. So I, I hung out with all these lawyers talking about DAOs and learning about legal personhood. And I learned all these legal concepts from them. Yeah. And we were in some of those meetings together yes. at, at some point. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, um, and then, and then I'm American, uh, if you can't tell. And, um, in America, we have this wonderful state called Delaware. And it, and it turns out that if you're a foreigner, if you're a European and you form a company in Delaware, you have more offshore protection doing that than you would in almost anything that we think of as an offshore jurisdiction. You know, you're, the transparency that a, a, a person has as a citizen of the Cayman Island to figure out what's going on in your company is greater than anyone in the U.S. has to figure out what's going on in a Delaware C-Corp. It's just private information. It's just not published anywhere. And so the TLDR there is there's all of these people in the, in the blockchain space who are trying to create DAOs and these legal structures and they're trying to figure out is a DAO a legal person and blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, wait a second. LLCs in America provide a huge amount of that protection already. And, and Gabe Shapiro is someone who sort of mentioned this to me in, in passing. And, and at that point, I entirely understood what you meant. I was like, oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of it that way. And so that's essentially what we're doing with uh, the, the Cayman Island LLC uh, law is based on the Delaware LLC law. So we're taking that and we're putting it in a in a in a more crypto friendly jurisdiction. And, um, and we're using that to provide the, the positive uh, legal protection. What I mean by positive is like it exists, right? As opposed to like, it doesn't exist, right? Not, ha not happy and sad. Right? Like, like the, 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 we're providing the positive legal protection um, for the organization um, using this legal structure. And so um, we're, we're positively asserting that we're not you know, engaging in securities transactions in the United States. A, all our transactions are in the Cayman Islands. If they were somehow security transactions, which we do not believe, you know, there's, again, you're, it's, you have to, they say belt and suspenders, but I, I don't know enough. There's not enough garment fasteners. We, we're using a lot more than just belt and suspenders to make sure that um, everyone's protected. Us as the operators are protected, operators of the business, service providers, end users, DAP developers, we're trying to make sure that all of us have um, sufficient legal protection where possible and where we have um, recourse if that uh, protection fails or is not available to us. So we, we, we've created this protection legally. And then in those bylaws, in those, in those well, not the bylaws, it's, a, it's, an, it's, a, it's an agreement. But within that agreement, we say the governance for this company happens or corporation whatever happens on chain yeah so you now have this sort of hybrid model where if the chain fails you can go to the court in cayman islands and do something 
but the chain has all this cryptographic stuff that it's not, you know, it, it falls over to Ethereum. But if somehow that still didn't work, you could still maybe go to Cayman Islands and try to call people back. But in the same vein, if the Cayman Islands um, governance gets captured, you could just say, well, we're just going to keep doing this on-chain stuff. And, um, you know, Cayman Islands can come after whoever they can come after. Good luck with that. Um, we're going to continue to operate on-chain. And, and so it's, it's really trying to hedge it from all of those different perspectives all at once by having bylaws that reference the on-chain activity. And then ultimately, we will be taking our, res our, our corporate resolutions um, and publishing them on-chain um, because they are currently uh, published at the registrar in the Cayman Islands. As I understand it, uh, you can go pay an uh, intermediary to go to the Cayman Islands, get the paper reports of all of our resolutions, and you can get them mailed to your house. We're going to, um, in addition to continuing to facilitate that as we're required to by law, we will also allow um, anyone using the network to just read that data uh, from the network as well. So it's interesting that you you build it this way and that, so essentially the, the Cayman Island company is a legal vehicle, but all the governance um, is happening on chain. And like, I know that, there are like the, the Lao, you know, is doing something similar yeah. in Wyoming. And um, do, do you think that this is a model that will end up being used more and more? Because like the, the Swiss Foundation is like, you know, the thing that everything that everybody yeah, uses. We could give a whole, we could, I could spend a whole hour talking about Swiss Foundation. So oh. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> very. Let's oh, not. But yes. uh... <laughs> I'm very opposed to Swiss Foundations. They have a lot of known problems. People can go read about all the issues that have existed with Swiss Foundations. I, I think that they serve a very limited purpose and they've sort of been overused. Um, the Wyoming stuff and, the, and some of the other uh, stuff in, in America, I believe there's one in Vermont. Um, those, some of those are sufficient and solve certain problems that you have as a U.S. citizen, but they don't do anything for you. If you're, and, you know, in some of these cases, they don't, they, they're not sufficient. So if you're a European or, or what have you and you, wanna, you don't want to land in the United States, well, then that's a non-starter. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, but do I think these, these um, strategies will gain traction? Um, I hope they do. I sincerely hope that they do. Um, I hope that we can uh, lead by example, but I'm also very, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of been doing this a while now. I, I don't think that if the users, I'm doing it for myself, for my own personal reasons, in terms of my own sense of safety and protection, but if the users don't get a value out of it, it's not gonna it's not gonna gain adoption. Yeah. And I and I think we are in a situation where we are providing a benefit to users because you you can we can now say with confidence we can serve you as an Iranian, we can serve a Russian, we can serve a, a Chinese person. Um, you know, we can say that with a confidence that you can't say that Infira just legally can't can't say that. Um, and so I think that that does provide value to the DAP developers who will use our service. Yeah. There's one last thing I want to talk about here just before you know, we wrap up and maybe just talking about roadmap quickly is, you know, in, in your, in, in your documentation, it says that it sort of describes the governance, um, that there's a diversity of jurisdictions. There's a diversity of sources of, uh, fu of funding sources, and there's no early allocations for VCs or founders. So how is this being funded? Are, are you raising, have you raised funds or are you raising funds? Or is it funded by the service providers that are 
or the partners that are part of this early network? Like, yeah, how does that work? Yeah, it's the latter. It's been funded. So um, there's been contributions of $8 million in cash um, uh, by the various members. So there's seven members. Um, the split is not, you know, it's not a immediately guessable split, but um, members contributed $2 million in cash. Not all of them did um, to, to, uh, to the development of the project. And so what, what is the reasoning behind this, uh, this, um, like, I mean, I feel like we've talked about this before, but like, why not build this as a sort of co-op or like a, a sort of like nonprofit association? Um, yeah, that, and, yeah, that just doesn't really provide. So it is very much like a co-op in the way that it's governed. But the legal structures there didn't help us. Didn't didn't solve the problem. You know, th it made things worse. We're mm. we're better off being a transparent for-profit company than we are being these mm. other things. And that's a matter of opinion. I mean, that's that's if somebody said, well, for me, you know, these are this is my argument for why you're wrong. I'd be like, okay. I mean, for you, that makes sense. But I, I'm still pretty confident for us that the for-profit, this transparent for-profit structure. Um, was better. And to be frank, it's very difficult to operate. And we are considering, you know, I would love to keep using this model, but I'm not going to let, you know, the perfect be the enemy of the good. So um, we may have to change the model in the future. And, and we are also raising an ecosystem fund. I mean, that's the current plan. So we're trying to raise tens of millions of dollars uh, in the ecosystem fund. Um, um, outside of funding the LLC directly. Um, and the LLC does have tokens. There is a token, but it's not a, it's, it's for payment. It's for prepayment of service. It's not a, it's not equity in any, in any sense. It's it, it, the goal is for it to clearly fit for a number of legal reasons for it to clearly fit within the regime of either, either or a um, loyalty point or prepayment for service. Hmm. So, um, hope maybe we'll be able, able to do both or, I mean, the law is complicated. Maybe we'll do one in one jurisdiction, another in another jurisdiction or whatever. But the, the goal is to it not be money and for it to not be equity. Um, and if it's a commodity, whatever, we're kind of neutral on that, but positively for it to be a loyalty point, um, or the prepayment of service. Uh, and, and we, and we are going to build a refund platform to facilitate that prepayment of service, uh, guarantee. Um, which is, you know, nothing like, uh, you know, uh, a speculative token, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow, I feel like I could go on for, I've got so many more questions, but uh, we're going to have to wrap it up. I think uh, we've been, yeah, it's been an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, just before we do though, like what's the roadmap? Um, what can people expect from, the, from this project? And uh, how can people get involved? Like, or, you know, can people build using Laconic already? Or will Yeah, so they can definitely build. We have a, we have a Twitter um, at Laconic Network. Um, uh, we have a Telegram and um, a Discord as well, which you can find, um, you know, going through there. Um, we have a lot of source code. All, uh, a lot of it works very well. Um, it, as always, it's a little underdocumented, but actually Zach, uh, who we worked with, I worked with at Eris, is doing a great job of improving the documentation. So the documentation is getting like leaps and bounds better every day. It's, a, it's making a lot of progress there. So yeah, people can... Yeah, people can um, download the code and run it themselves. 
Um, and yeah, there's laconic.com where you can find all of this information, you know, how to engage in all of this. In terms of the roadmap, um, there are, again, seven different companies working on the project at the moment, um, seven or eight, depending on how you count or more. Is that public, by the way? Did you disclose who those companies are? Um, it's not secret, but it's not public either. Um, so, <laughs> no, there's no blog post. Um, but it it operates not... in this illegality space. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, um, so, yeah, so you can, um, in, terms of, in terms of roadmap, um, the company that I run, Cirque, is primarily focused on acquiring customers. So we, we do, we manage all of the software development and then we do in-house a significant portion of the software development. And then that's, I would, it's not really outsourced, but there's the different members contribute different things. And it's all very complicated. I'm trying to be terse here because we're running over. So, so, um, so we're focused on going to individual projects who we believe have a, a need or a synergy and getting them to use our stack. And, and, and so we have announced MobyMask, which is from MetaMask, which is from Consensus. Um, there are other things that we've done with, with other people uh, at Consensus that may or may not be made public in the next month or two. Uh, I don't know what their, what their publicity roadmap is. There are other um, people that we're talking to who are well-known, well-funded projects. Um, there are people in the NFT space um, so that's the roadmap that we're focused on now. We are building a blockchain. Um, uh, it is Cosmos SDK based. Um, it has a name registry in it. It has a name service in it. It has some other interesting uh, features that people talk about often in the Cosmos ecosystem. Um, and, and so we're, we're absolutely developing that. Um, when we will launch that network um, is a more open question. It's, it's based on our ability to actually get traction with customers it mm. you know if we get as we get traction with customers because i think we already have some demonstrated traction with customers as that traction grows um that will inform us on how we want to i have a, i have a whole model a whole plan in place for how to launch the network but it's it's sort of sans feedback right so we need to get that feedback from people actually using the system to help direct how we should launch it do we need to add more than seven members? Does, does is that actually matter? You know, the, the 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 verifiability, the fault tolerance, the 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 trust minimization. We can get these properties without having a hundred validators. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. it, it there's a question about why do we need more validators? Do we need more validators? How do we add those validators? And all that stuff is again. I can sit down and write, you know, a 40 page thing, giving my view on it and articulating a whole plan, which I have done. But um, but that's that has to, you know, meet meet reality. You know, we have to go through the process of, of interfacing that with reality. So there, there's yeah. not. So hopefully by the end of 2023, we will have um, an incentivized test net. Um, but. I gave that long preamble to say, you know, that's not set in stone. Yeah. Rick, uh, thanks so much for your time here. Um, I've really enjoyed uh, diving deep here with you. And um, yeah, looking forward to doing it, doing it again at some point uh, in the future, maybe about this topic or maybe about other topics. Yeah, my um, pleasure. Happy to talk about whatever you think I should talk about. 
Yeah, we still need to do that that podcast we, we've been talking about doing for a long time. But uh, <laughs> all right, man. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, we'll talk again soon. It's always a pleasure. Bye-bye. Cheers.